From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 171 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl. I'm joined today by Dave and Ryan, as always, and we have a very interesting show for you today. But first, we're all nice and warmed up, but I'm going to start us off with with a silly, fun one, gents. What sport would be the funniest to add a mandatory amount of alcohol to? Well, see, I will start by saying nothing that has actual hardcore physical contact, like football with alcohol would be American football with alcohol would be a terrifying just recipe for compound fractures. That would not be cool. They call that uh, but rugby. I can vouch for. I know I can vouch for with firsthand experience the uh, the the bottomless amounts of humor that ensue when you mix golf and alcohol. So it's uh, it's not good sports, but it's really entertaining. I think golf and alcohol already are a sport. Like that's already how you yeah, play. Yeah, and same sport. thing with hockey. You know, the the it's it's the only sport I think in the Olympics where the lose the winning team has to buy the losing team the first drink. So, but I like any sport where I can have a beer in one hand and whatever in the other hand, whether that's uh, hockey or uh, croquet or whatever. But if I were going to add alcohol to a sport, it would probably have to be the axe throwing that is becoming so popular. <laughs> yeah, I think that already comes and the same as like cornhole. Those already have like that's already well, see, I'm cornhole is another one where you can have a beer in one hand and then the thing in the other hand. So I'm not sure on this one. And I would I think my answer would probably be soccer. Um, and, I, and I will say, say from a general perspective, particularly and I know this is blasphemous for some like I can find big international meets really boring because there's a lot of no scoring and a this lot of a running around doing very little. Talking. It's true. Because <laughs> in baseball, there at least is like, like it's intentional pauses. With soccer, it's supposed to be going on. There's supposed to be a timed bit, but then they're just running, doing nothing. As opposed to baseball, where we know we're doing nothing. Uh, and So I could say, like, if I added alcohol to soccer, I'm reasonably confident that would be funny. <laughs> well, and see, there's, you're making a distinction alcohol for the fans or alcohol for the participants because i'm thinking if you were going to add it it would need to be on any of the precision concentration sports like i'm thinking if you added it to tennis like every time you switch sides you got to drink a beer uh that would get super entertaining really fast uh high level table tennis right chess. Uh, imagine imagine that kind of spinning with uh with, with a little bit too much to drink. That'd be excellent. Now, now that's a whole it's a whole deep topic, Dave. We didn't even It's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Are you still relying on a frustrating patchwork of legacy solutions? Modernize your cybersecurity and data protection with a Cronus CyberProtect Cloud. It's a single solution that combines backup, anti-malware, and endpoint protection management. As an MSP, you can easily improve client security posture, eliminate complexity, and generate more recurring revenue. Learn more about a Cronus CyberProtect Cloud at acronus.com. So we have a very odd first topic today. And uh, 
I, I have to explain it a bit, but we've all talked about deep fakes where basically people are able to create videos and pretend to be that person. Well, now people are doing deep fakes for job interviews, in particular for tech jobs. And the weirdest part of this is that they're not actually trying to get the job. They're fishing for information from the interviewers, from the job process, uh, getting into the websites. Uh, it's, it's layers and layers of what the hell is next. It's just, it's one of the oddest things. I was not aware that that people were faking job interviews with the technology of basically having a, a team of people behind them giving them you know, the, the correct answers to live interview questions. Um, but now there's this where people actually pretend to be a non-existent job applicant, have a fake resume, have the people behind them, and are then sort of digging into the interviewers technology while the interview is going on. It's like, yeah. What? Or get hired. Like an end result of this, I read the FBI warning, or literally go all the way as get hired and then then get inside the organization as a remote right, employee. as a remote employee. So now you've got to log on and credentials and the whole deal. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's brilliant. Like, let's, <laughs> let's call it, it is, come on. We, we, we have to acknowledge and admire our adversaries intelligence i think it's i think it's a, to our own detriment to not take these guys seriously and laugh and talk about it as like oh no they're freaking smart that's brilliant what a great exploit what an incredible fascinating way to get in there because i i covered this on business tech and my advice there that what I, I gave was is the or is your hiring process include actual verification that this is a real person and know that they may actually be trying to use stolen credentials to get through your process is your process ready for that because i think most are not See, I think that is the excellent point here. In a world where we are trying to grow and it is harder than ever to find and hire a new employee, uh, there's been a, a ton of conversation around that in the world, but then also we mix that with a hybrid or remote working world where we advocate for uh, expanding the footprint of your organization. That That is a set of circumstances begging for exploitation, and it could be, as in this situation, a creative way to get credentials and sign in and, and just pillage your network for all of its deepest secrets, or it could be, uh, I'm 13 and I'm bored, and I really don't have anything to do this summer, so I deepfaked myself into a grown-up, and I did the Tom Hanks big, but... I had Google it at my disposal, so I sounded at least as smart as the average level one tech. And I got a job, and you didn't realize that. I would, I would say your, your advice is spot on, Dave. The average MSP or solution provider is so woefully bad at recruiting that it is highly surprising that they have not already been exploited in this process like we don't pay for background checks we don't pay for uh for professional uh review of references we don't actually spend the time with these people that we need most people are just like well i hire somebody once every three or four years and i'm bad at it do you want to work for me you do okay fine right. you start on monday that's not enough. Well, and if it's a totally online thing one of the things that occurs to me is that mm, 
maybe this is your next million dollar job opportunity is to create a service that filters out job applicants so that you, you provide the video channel, you provide uh, the, I guess, credentials to prove this is a real human being who exists in the real world and they have a real address <laughs> and a pulse and stuff like that. Um, but man, it, this, this is, I think it's very sad because yes, these people are very, very smart, but holy smokes, imagine how much good they could do for the world if they used their, their knowledge for good things instead of evil things. Know, just me. Well, to a certain degree, we have to remember that we have to create situations at time where they are economically incentivized to do that. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we have as many uh, cyber criminals coming from, you know, Russia or China is that they have systems that are economically in, uh, motivating them to take advantage. That is the best set of jobs and governmental cover yeah. that allows it. That is more than we willing also to, have to admit massive. It fraud. What's one of the things that's amazing about all this is how fast they come up with this stuff, right? They introduced the, uh, uh, you know, incentives a few years ago because of COVID and all the, the guys in prison decided, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply for a thousand unemployment checks, have them sent to the, my, my friends and cousins and relatives and former, uh, spouses and, uh, we literally in California, we can't even calculate how many billions of dollars have been lost to uh, unemployment fraud just because of that. And, it, and it's all these people who are, they're not in Russia. They're in California prisons. <laughs> well, but uh, again, speaking of an economic incentive to do something other than what you are already doing during the day, I think that one qualifies. I think, I think this is a great time, though, to stop and readdress just the continuous evolution of the cybersecurity game. I think if any of us believe for a moment that like, I got this, I, you know, we, we paid attention to it real hard a couple of years ago. We spent some money, we bought some services, we subscribed to one or two things that I think are still active. We've got this handled. No, you don't. Because in any adversarial economy, there has to be continuous innovation. Innovation on the side of the defenders in cybersecurity that's what we all do for a living. We're trying to find new ways to defend against this plethora of attack vectors and techniques. Well, the other guys have to be innovative as well. And if there's a new technology out there, they're going to use it to attack you. It's why cybersecurity is the most evergreen business service you will ever provide. Well, let's put a pin in cybersecurity because we will revisit that. And I'm gonna move us into topic number two. So. Uh, I want to address from as we're, we're going to tackle something that has political implications. We're going to talk about the business implications. Of course, the Supreme Court in the United States has overturned the uh, Roe versus Wade ruling and has removed that uh, federal protection for abortion, allowing a number of states to move forward with trigger laws. Uh, so there were 13 states with trigger laws, including Texas's, which includes the ability for citizens to sue providers uh, individually. Additionally, there's a number, a collection of other states, and it may be as many as 26 states that end up fully banning uh, abortion within their states or, or having severe restrictions. The context then in a technology standpoint is the discussion around data privacy. We're linking to a article from The Verge uh, that, that dives into some of the, this, but the context here is, is we have gone from a state where one set of conditions was allowed and legal 
and then have a dramatically different set of conditions after that and the implications on information around this space. And I will say this is this is a scary area for many people who had not thought of the downsides of certain sets of data, which now can be exploited. One example, uh, period trackers. So if a woman is tracking her period, uh, that data is logged as healthcare data, then you have a period of time where perhaps that period is no longer being tracked. Then it appears again, and if there is no baby at the end of that sign, that could be used as evidence that there was an abortion. Gents, looking at this through the lens of data privacy and what's going on in a data protection world, what's your kind of takeaway and thinking on the implications for MSPs, IT services companies here? Well, it would be nice to think that a privacy law would do the trick. Um, Clearly, if you're downloading an app and serving up your data through uh, uh, China <laughs> and then through uh, Google and uh, government agencies and whatnot, <sighs> then you've given up your right to HIPAA a protection for this, even though it's a health matter. Um, so I don't know that another privacy law is going to do us much good, um, although I, mm, I suspect privacy laws working their way through the system will get amended. Um, I'm not sure it's going to do them any good. I think data ownership laws would probably be a, a particularly as they relate to health. So healthcare is a great example. So I was doing my own research on this to try and make sure I was caught up, and I had not quite fully realized the implication under HIPAA that uh, patients don't own their data. Right? It's the, in fact, the doctors and the healthcare systems own their data. As I think through that as a technologist, that does make some sense. I understand it, but perhaps we want to start defining kinds of data that individuals own versus companies own and what, what a privacy law defines on that because that's how warrants get used. If you're, uh, you know, the reason that this is, is potentially now open as an exposure is not necessarily the nature of the data, but the fact that it is owned by a company rather than the person. So if an investigator wants to determine it, they can issue a warrant to the company that owns the data, who then was not necessarily motivated the same way to protect it as an individual might. And I think for, for me, the framing was the, I, I'm not necessarily confident it's a quote unquote data privacy law, it's more specific details of what information are personal and owned by the person, not owned by the collector. Well, and see, I had two main reactions to this from the business and data perspective. Number one is that it is high time that individuals take this seriously as a culture, as an industry from both sides, the people asking for and gathering information, as well as the people who are giving up information, there is a profound casual approach to the way that we deal with our own personal information. Uh, a business will say, click here and to agree with our terms of use and we'll just collect literally everything about you even if our business model is only built on the premise of having three or four pieces of data, we're going to legally ask for, and you're going to click to sign for allowing me to track literally hundreds of different pieces of information. Do you need that to run your business? No, but I might. And at some point in the future, wouldn't it be interesting to go back and mine it and see if I could unlock further business value? 
that's outrageously irresponsible and it's something that we need to start taking seriously. On the user's side, we tend to look at things and go, I can get a free emoji, cool. I'll tell you my birth date and my, and my mom's maiden name. I'll give away all kinds of information because that means I can watch this video without ads or whatever. It is no longer that kind of a world. You live in a world where the data that you give up can and will be used against you in a court of law. And that is something that makes everybody stop and think more carefully, which led to my second thought about this. There are a tremendous number of business models that are going to be almost instantly disrupted by new government regulation. And, and it doesn't matter what that regulation is. You described the scenario perfectly, Dave. We lived in a set of conditions where this information was not fraught with legal peril. It was perfectly valid to ask for. It was something that people were willing and comfortable sharing. And then the government came in and said, by the way, here's a new law. And it changed those conditions markedly overnight. All of those businesses that are doing that kind of service, 10 days ago, their stock price was probably pretty healthy. 10 days from now, when people wake up and go, oh, shit, that's actually really material to their results. I don't think those companies are going to continue as a going concern because their basic foundation of business principle has been altered. If you think that's unique to this situation, uh, think about when HIPAA was introduced back in the good old days of Graham Leach Bliley, back in any of these things. Yesterday, this data was fine. I'll give it to you. It's cool. Tomorrow, oh crap, the government came calling and now it's radically different. The government is going to cause some unintended disruption that will literally put chunks of industries out of business. I keep hearing all of this discussion about compliance being the new space, compliance being the new space, but I actually think the underlooked opportunity around this is, and I don't have a good name for it, but I use data management and data management services, meaning the idea not of you know, hey, we're just going to help protect your data and make sure it doesn't get blown up in a disaster, but that we will look at your data and work with you and make sure you are intentionally collecting only what you need to collect and not more than that to, to reduce your risk. And I think that's a very deliberate set of choices that consultants and IT providers and can deliver as a service and it's in my pile of and super valuable, right? And so you can charge real money for that. But more importantly, like it's hard and it's it's gonna be only a, a small subset of people that are able to There's actually do There's also it. ways that the companies who collect the data can store it and use it and have policies around that. One of the early, early uh, case studies on uh, using metadata was Target, right? Basically figuring out uh, uh, that women were pregnant before the women knew they were pregnant and sending them advertising and so forth and then figured out uh, that's just a little over the creepy line and so they stopped doing that but that doesn't mean they stopped collecting the data they just stopped using it in specific ways and so when we look at larger corporations uh, you can see corporations thinking ah maybe what we'll do is have a policy of only storing data in a certain way so it can't be used for this and that and and only reporting it in certain ways there's a long history in the health research field of not 
ever disclosing data in a way that it can be identified to a group smaller than 10 within a certain geographic area, right? So uh, there's some groundwork for how to proceed, but uh, it's a different world. I will say last word on this, Ryan, you're full of shit. We have been warned about giving up our data in exchange for privacy for 15 years, and so far, not one person on earth has paid attention to it. No, see, that's exactly what we're saying. Uh, we've all been really cavalier. Oh, it's fine. It's totally fine. Uh, you don't live in that world anymore. It ain't fine anymore. Speaking of, we're going to jump over into our third topic and go back to the world of cybersecurity, this time in the context of the ongoing G7 meetings that are happening, at which senior political officials are coming to violent agreement on the fact that, A, cybersecurity might be important, <laughs> welcome to the party, and B, that the nations in the G7 ought to actually, I don't know, have a policy. Now, the way that they're doing it, we're linking to uh, a very interesting article here that talks about uh, a new proposal for the G7 nations pooling together foreign aid money that will be used for four different purposes. There's 4,000 reasons you could use foreign aid, but they've agreed on four. And, uh, and to get them to agree on those four are, are some really um, uh, big strides forward. One of the four is on cybersecurity. Now, the really interesting link to this is it's funding for emerging or developing nations, those that are smaller, that are economically challenged, et cetera. We're going to give them money, but we're going to do it in a way that it has hooks for implications around how they deal, A, with development of technology, and B, with the way they deploy their government systems and resources so that they can ensure cybersecurity. Uh, I think this is a very interesting, if not hellaciously complicated approach, but uh, what do you guys think? Does it have legs? Well, the, the warning was what I dug into because I was really I wondered what the because the headline is that there's state official warns of peril to the to the goals and as I dug into the article what was striking to me was that the peril they were focusing on was that if you don't include input from the developing nations into the standards you're actually closing off a lot of potential opportunity and needs from those and I'm struck by the parallels to huh funny what happens when one group of people does not include the others in, in thinking about the outcomes of this. Uh, I can see history rhyming again on this. Uh, you know, do we want to do we want, which set of rights around, uh, you know, in other areas do we want to focus on? Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly very pro uh, defining this. I'm pro collaboration, but I also want to make sure that we're very deliberate and inclusive and think of these downsides. Like we need to be careful about making sure to include all the parties, all of the, the necessary stakeholders. And it's not just Western G7 nations. It can be large. It needs to be larger than that if this is going to be a technology we're relying on, particularly because... We've had discussions around things like the splinter net problem, where we don't necessarily want whole sections of the internet carving themselves off where we can't do business, where we where the rules of the road aren't applied. There's so much downside here. Well, and I was gonna mention the splinter net because clearly uh, what's going on, it's actually going on right now uh, around the world is China is offering internet connectivity and services to countries who 
have felt a little bit alienated by the West or have felt like the West has spent, you know, 100 or 200 years taking advantage of them. And, you know, now your good friends in China are going to show you an alternative Internet, which is, you know, free of all that capitalist bullshit and uh, away we go. Um, it's also the case that uh, we are pushing a group of nations uh, in the United States version of the contract for the web. So this is the contract for our part of the web. Uh, that now, whether you split it into two or include the Russians and split it into three, or now uh, include developing nations and split it into four, uh, we could have some very different um, connections of the so-called internet uh, just in a few years, because all you got to do is replace a few routers <laughs> and you're done. Well, and we did it organically. It happened right here in this conversation, as well as 10 minutes ago in our first segment, where we said cybersecurity, there might be issues, dot, dot, dot. You wonder why people are motivated to do this. It has a lot to do with economic conditions, dot, 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 Russia, China. Right. Like that connection was something that organically came up in this conversation. And it is precisely the feedback that these diplomats are actually uh, expressing that they're receiving from China and Russia. Right. The G7 gets together. Everybody slaps everybody on the back. They go to Austria in the summertime, which I can't highly recommend enough. That's fantastic. And they all agree cybersecurity is a big deal. We are the good guys. We should write the rules. And instantly the emissaries from Russia and China that are not invited to these meetings, they write back and say, well, you don't get to define the rules for us. We're going to do it differently. Now, whether you read into that any malintent or if you just read into it exactly what you were describing, Carl, of uh, if you don't invite me to where the rules are made, why would you expect me to obey the rules? In either case, whether it's aggressive or benign, those two nations are not going to feel cozy with this arrangement. And it is, my, my takeaway is, it's a noble approach. It's a great idea. I am thrilled that even the great big nation economies that are run by old outdated people who do not know how to spell cybersecurity, they believe it's one of the four topics that we can all agree on that we need to address in the developing world. That's a fantastic idea. Um, but if they think that they're just gonna be able to like shake hands, shake hands, take a press photo, and it's going to be accepted by the world, no, this will be the first volley in an escalation where you're gonna get back something even more confrontational from those who don't agree. Let me say, I am heartened by the fact that there's, as you said, there's distinct investments of time and energy. I mean, the fact that the State Department has dedicated resources for cybersecurity and for cyber relations, the fact that these are coming up in diplomatic meetings, this does mean that there is a mechanism of people spending considerable time and effort thinking about these issues, determining how they're going to address it, and doing something about it. I just want to make sure that they, you know, the, the added input is the don't leave out all of the necessary players and all of the downside because it has generally been the trend that anything on technology we're not spending enough time thinking about the downside and bad consequences of things we tend to only focus on the good outcomes i was gonna say i don't i don't think anybody 
listens to this podcast hoping that they get some tips on negotiating uh, inter international agreements. But uh, on the diplomacy side, when you sit down and you say, I want to invite an extra whatever, 50 countries to sit down at the table, you know that you might have to give up something, but you also gain a tremendous amount. Even if they don't change anything substantive, you gain a huge amount by having those extra voices at the table. And I think fundamentally, that's something the West can do that China will not. And by the way, I want to I want to bring this way down because because I want to make sure that the average MSP who's listening or IT services provider who's listening to this is not going, oh well, this is so big and I don't think about it. The the bit that I want you to focus on is look look this is yet another set of kind of re of regulations that are out there that someone is working on that you need to have a process built into your business of collecting, reviewing, and inserting into the into the process. Yes, this may not happen for a while, but at some point you're going to need a way of managing, ingesting, and doing something with this because it will impact some portion of the way you deliver services, particularly because security is part of everything. So no, even if, if, even if you're just starting to build out that practice area or that methodology now, no, you're going to have to spend some time working on that. Well, and, and I will admit, I originally misread the lead to the article, and it says uh, there's, you know, the G7, they're going to agree on some new, uh, new approach to cybersecurity, and they're going to use actual pools of money and, and put conditions on how it is dis distributed, and the number is $200 billion. And I thought, well, that might actually start to cover the need if they put $200 billion into cybersecurity. You might actually make a dent in this thing. And then I read on and I realized, oh, well, that's only one of the priorities and it's not going to get a tiny fraction. My advice to local providers, uh, it, the government's never going to, they're going to create the need for your services and compliance with their regulations. They are never going to solve this problem and your customers are going to find more and more reasons to just throw up their hands and go, it's too hard. I can't do this. I can't do digital commerce. Sadly, that will do it for episode 171 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.